How are you this morning, church? That's good. Um, but how good? How good are you? I don't know about you, but um, when someone asks me that, it's often something I say without thinking. Um, some, uh, some of you know that a couple of weeks ago I had a, a sore on my foot, a blister that got infected. I had me out of work for a few days because I couldn't walk too well. Um, but the first day I had it, I went to work um, in the morning and, I, and people would say to me, oh, how are you, Nathan? And I'm, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all right, I'm good. And without even thinking, of course, and they'd look at my limp and say, no, you're not, you can't walk. <laughs> like I said, I just don't think about it. But so, so the question remains, how good am I? Am, or am I even good? Is, is it just something I say without thinking and maybe I'm just not even, it's not even the case? But, I mean, the fact is, I'm not worse. They didn't amputate my foot, so, so that, that, that would be a lot worse. Um, but joking aside, in the grand scheme of things, I could be dead without ever having known God, and that would be really bad, um, which is quite the understatement. Um, but of course, I could be better too. I, I will be better in the future. There'll be a time when I won't worry about sin or pain or death anymore. Um, and so, am I good in the meantime? Are we good in the meantime, all of us? And if so, how good? Well, if we really stop to think about it, those of us who are Christians uh, really are good now. In fact, we're really good. In some ways, we couldn't be better. So you ask me, how'd you come to that conclusion? Well, the gospel we've received, the gospel that our sin is forgiven, and that we are reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection, that's good news, right? Of course, for unbelievers, the news of impending judgment is dire news, and only those who have trusted Jesus can find comfort in the good news of his forgiveness. But if you, like me, believe that you are saved by Jesus' work on the cross and his rising from the dead, then you can re- you have received the best news there ever was. After all, that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. But like I've said several times so far, how good? How good is good news? Well, we've, we've just read before David's answer in Psalm 32. And, and bear in mind the significance of who it is that's speaking in this psalm. It's King David, uh, one of the greatest, among the greatest kings who's ever ruled, uh, the man after God's own heart who subjugated Israel's neighbors and brought in the nation's golden era. But that's not what's good, according to David. In fact, David is no longer at the peak of his kingship and what we're going to read is only a few months after his greatness had peaked and then gone sharply downhill. Because as many of you will know, only months earlier he'd been embroiled in a terrible affair uh, in which he impregnated another man's wife, then tried to cover it up and eventually orchestrated the man's death. And then uh, he'd been made aware of God's displeasure by a prophet and because of his sin had experienced not only deep depression but also the loss of his son. And then, of course, he prayed the, the famous prayer of confession in Psalm 51 and experienced the good news of God's forgiveness. And so now we, we can ask David the question we keep coming back to, David, how good is this good news? Um, <clears throat> and, of course, we get this answer in Psalm 32, which Janelle's just read out for us. <clears throat> um uh, David tells us that the gospel results in a, in a forgiven person being blessed. Blessed literally means happy, um, but it in, in the Bible it, it, it really always implies that it's what God has done for you that makes you happy when it uses the word blessed. In other words, God's forgiveness 
In God's forgiveness, we receive great outpourings of his grace. We receive great blessings. In this psalm, David lists seven of them. Uh, and you'll see them in your news sheets because they're going to form our points this morning. They're on the, on the back of your news sheets if you want to take notes. Uh, so we're going to jump straight into it uh, and, look at some, uh, and look at verses 1 and 2, the, the first blessing, which is full pardon. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What do we do with the wrong we've done? How do we learn to live with it? How do we hide it? We know in our conscience that sin is wrong. And we know that there's such a thing as wrong, right and wrong, that wrong is bad, it's undesirable, and that we've done wrong. And even from infanthood, we try to hide the wrong things we do. We, we lie, we avoid the truth, and of course we hate being caught out, don't we? But the fact is, as uh, I'm sure many of you know, we can't hide our wrongdoings from God the judge. He knows everything we've done. Everything we've ever done is recorded in his books. And those books will be opened at the final judgment. I mean, we can do our best to try to hide it or pretend there's nothing wrong. And and everyone does. We have all throughout human history since the fall. It started with sewing fig leaves together. Uh, And recent examples there are like putting legislation in place which makes wrong seem right. Um, And people will continue to do it up until the final judgment where they try to appease God with all the quote-unquote good they've done. But like I said, ultimately it's futile. We can't hide from the all-knowing God or justify ourselves before the perfect righteous judge. We can't deal with our sin, but human history is also full of times that God has shown that he can and does deal with sin effectively. How does he deal with sin? Well, through this first blessing of forgiveness that we read about here, by pronouncing a full pardon over all the wrong things we've done. This is a legal declaration over legal transgressions. In other words, it's like God is refusing to press charges against us or punish us. David uses the terms transgression uh, and sin in verse 1 and talks about what God counts against us in verse 2. And of course, all of those are referring uh, to actions, those sorts of terminology. Transgression, uh, the term refers to law-breaking. Sin means missing the mark, in other words, not living up to the standard, the law that there is. And of course, God counting iniquity is a legal term referring to what God holds against us, the, the charges that God presses. And as David said, we are God is pronouncing a full pardon over all of those. Now, he didn't fully understand how this pardon came about without breaking the demands of justice. He knew through the Mosaic law, of course, that it had to do with substitution. That is, the punishment being taken by another party. But of course, he didn't know exactly who would be the substitute, ultimately. <clears throat> but now we know that it's through Jesus, through his death on our behalf, that we have forgiveness. It says in Hebrews 9 verse 26, Jesus has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And how does that affect us? Well, Janelle also just read for us Colossians 2, uh, and I won't read the whole thing again, but in verse 13 and 14 it says that God has forgiven us of all our trespasses 
by cancelling the legal the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he sort of this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We're forgiven because Jesus put his name to our sin, took our punishment for our sin on the cross, so that we don't have to do it, so that we don't have to anymore. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He had no record of guilt with which his cross could be labelled, as was the custom. So instead, God took our record of debt and nailed that to the cross, is what Colossians says. Jesus died taking the legal punishment for our sin so that we can have peace with God. Uh, It's what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And back in Psalm 32, uh, we see in the last phrase of of verse 2 that uh, this pardon is God's doing. You know, lots of people think that they are right with God because they've hidden, done away with or undone their own sin. But of course, that's deceit. And in doing so, they only deceive themselves. Many other people think that they have a right to God's forgiveness. But again, it's only God's doing. Paul uses these same verses to show that in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read from the middle of verse 3 down to verse 8. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing to the one, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. No one has a right to forgiveness. It's only the gift of God given freely as he sees fit. And no one can honestly claim they don't need forgiveness. Now don't miss this point. It's key to the psalm, it's key to the gospel, it's key to the whole Bible and to all of life. Only those who are honest and broken before God about their sin can receive his forgiveness. Because we must recognize that only he can forgive sins. And the awesome thing about it uh, is that when God, sorry, is when those who are honest about their sins receive his forgiveness, they truly show the glory of God, the mercy of God in all its glory. Which then should teach us about how we should, how we can experience God's forgiveness by humbly and honestly telling Him who we are and how much we need Him. If you are hiding, trying to hide your sin from God, if you're trying to show yourself to Him as better than you are, or pretend that you're, uh, that God should or does forgive you because you're, you're great as it is, heed this. All the blessings of God's forgiveness are felt only by those who acknowledge their sin before Him. So do that. And if you do, you have this blessing, this promise of blessing that God will give you that full pardon. Uh, Moving on to to verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. Uh, The second point, uh, in fact, let me read that again. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And the second point is in some ways not a blessing but a curse. Verses 3 and 4 show us, the verse, show us the curse of not being forgiven. Following his sin with Bathsheba, David suffered terrible depression because even though he hated to admit it, he was keenly aware of his guilt. Not just his joy, but his, even his physical health and energy were sapped as God disciplined him. 
And in this state of being unforgiven, David was feeling the brunt of God's anger at sin, but not the full brunt. Because really this isn't the ultimate curse of being not forgiven. The ultimate curse is spending eternity in hell. And in the discipline he experienced, David felt just a tiny fraction of that, of the miseries that hell has to offer. Uh, It was but a small reminder of where his sin would take him if he refused to confess it to God. And ultimately, it resulted in David's repentance. And so in, in, in that sense, this pain was in fact a blessing. God in his mercy would not allow David to continue in sin and reap its consequences. Uh, So he sent this hardship to remind David of the wrongness of his ways. The writer of Hebrews refers to this aspect of God's grace as fatherly discipline in Hebrews 12. And in that passage, the writer reminds his readers to see God's discipline as a blessing and not to resent it. He shows in various ways that God disciplines his children, those whom he loves, just like a normal father would, uh, as an outworking of his love towards them. Verse 11 Uh, says this, In the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so it's right to see God's fatherly discipline as a blessing of his forgiveness. Uh, Now, of course, discipline is only one sort of hardship, and not all hardship is related to sin. Um, Of course, David will talk later in verse 6 about the rush of great waters, which is another form of hardship and has nothing to do with God's displeasure. But verse 3 tells us that David knew all about his sin. He knew exactly why God was punishing him, and he was deliberately keeping silent about it before God. So when we're deliberately, stubbornly living in sin and God's put, God puts hardship in our lives, we need to be like David and heed the discipline. If you have a guilty conscience and God's hand is heavy upon you, God is reminding you to return to him in confession and repentance and to find his forgiveness. Like the writer of Hebrews says, don't resent God's discipline, respond to it. And as we see in the next verse of Psalm 32, God's fatherly discipline led David to repentance, and there he experienced the next blessing, freedom from guilt. Let me read verse 5. David says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't this such a wonderfully simple verse? Uh, David spends three lines uh, explaining that he confessed his sin, and then there's just this simple, beautiful statement, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's all done. But initially, I actually found this verse quite troubling because I thought the, Dave, the fact that David said less about the forgiveness than the confession is somehow an indication that God is doing less than David asked. But of course, that's certainly not the case. And in looking in deeper into it, I found that God actually did more than David asked. See, David asked for his forgiveness for his transgressions, but God forgave his iniquity. Like I said before, a transgression is breaking God's law. Uh, His sin is a failure to live up to his standard. But iniquity is something else entirely. It means wrongness or injustice. It carries the idea of sinfulness, wickedness or guiltiness rather than specific wicked wrongdoings um, specifically. Uh, So God forgave David and freed him of his guilt, not his feelings of guilt, the fact of his guilt. Or in other words, I said before that God is not pressing charges, but it's not just that. God is abolishing David's entire criminal record. Well, why is that important? 
Well, you can go around believing that your specific sins are all forgiven and yet believe that your general inadequacy, your general sinful nature is making God generally displeased with you. But of course, that's, that's not true. God has forgiven us not just of the specific sins we confess to him, but of our sinfulness, our sinful state um, that we are born into itself. Once and for all, we're covered with Christ's righteousness. We no longer stand before God as sinners, but as perfect holy saints. Which brings about the fourth blessing, favor with God, in verses 6 and 7. Uh, let's read verses six, 6 and 7, and as we do, I want to remind you that because of the third blessing, when it says everyone who is godly, it's referring to everyone who's been forgiven. Uh, verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Everyone who is godly, that is, everyone who's been made godly, that is, everyone who's been forgiven, has received favor with God such that he listens to and answers prayer, even in times of desperate need, like the rush of great waters. And from his own experience, David gives three benefits of God's favor. Firstly, he says God God is his hiding place. In other words, evil tries to find him to oppress him, but it can't because God is hiding him away. Second, David says God preserves him from trouble, which doesn't mean that there's no trouble in David's life, but that the trouble there is has no effect on him. Just like if you preserve food, it's not removing time, it's just removing the effects of time. And the passage of time causes no change to it. And thirdly, David says God surrounds him with shouts of deliverance, which alludes to God's encouragement. Uh, God is reminding him of the greatness of his gospel uh, and God does, that, does so through his word, uh, through other people, through gospel-centered songs and so on. Uh, and the, the implication is that, of course, God is the same. God do, what God did for David then, uh, he does for us now. God is the same for David and for all of his people, the same then, the same now. And so because of that, David says we should pray to God. Make a habit of it. Every time God listens is a good time. David says, in other words, all the time, because God always listens. It's always a good time to pray to God. What a simple, logical response to this blessing of favor with God, and yet one we need so often. Uh, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. The the fifth blessing is uh, in verses 8 and 9, and at this point David stops talking to God and starts talking to those around him. He says to us, I will teach you, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. David's goal is to bring about righteousness in other people. <clears throat> and I don't think we really think about this much as Christians. We, we don't really think about helping people be more like Christ where, unless they're directly placed under our care. Our attitude is often more like that of uh, Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars Episode 1. If you've seen that movie, you'll remember for most of the movie, he followed the heroes around doing whatever they wanted because they saved his life. And it's like we see it as our duty to serve God, um, which, it, which it is. Uh, in response to the gospel, uh, we are called to follow God in response to it. 
Um, but we, we do it as a way of saying thanks. We, we uh, may be trying to partially repay a debt we think we have or to become worthy of his love or whatever our motives may be. But that's not David's motive here. That's not David's attitude here. David would say we should obey God, but he's not duty-bound. Rather, he has a fervor for righteousness. He's passionate about it. And that's why he's looking to bring it about in those around him. See, duty-bound people only want to obey God on their own. Um, They have no real responsibility for those around them. They don't really have any care for the the person next to them. But in David's fervor for righteousness... Uh, He wants to see it not just in himself, but in everyone he comes across. And that's what this blessing is all about. God giving us his spirit to change our passions to be like his own. Uh, Let me read from uh, Romans chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 verse 21, uh, Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Uh, Skipping down to chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, Verse 9 Going on, uh, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Did you see the change of passions that Paul is talking about there? When God put his spirit within us, our passions change from being earthly-centered to being uh, heavenly-centered, to being what we, from being what we want to being what God wants. Uh, and we see this change of, plas- change of passions clearly play out in David's life. Before, David had been passionate about Bathsheba, uh, but as we've seen, God has now made him passionate about righteousness. In verse 8, we see how diligent David is in teaching people. Uh, He instructs them in in giving them guidelines on how to live. He teaches them, bringing to the point where they can put those instructions into practice, and then he counsels them, helping them after they start following God's ways. His fervor is so intense that he's going to do everything necessary to make sure people are fully equipped to live God's way. So how about you? How about me? Are we passionate to to see how those around us are uh, doing what's right. And if not, I pray that God would give us uh, this kind of fervor for righteousness' sake uh, so that we'd be passionate about God's ways and we'd teach each other, uh, we teach God's ways to those around us. And then moving on, just as verse 8 shows us what it's like to teach passionately, verse 9 shows us what it's like to learn in the same way. We're to learn just as diligently as we're to preach, being humble and not stubborn. 
David has said it over and over in this psalm, those who stubbornly cling to their sin will have no freedom from it. But if we're passionate about righteousness, we'll put effort into forsaking sin and learning righteousness, just as David describes here in verse 9. Because fervor for righteousness brings about both things, diligence in teaching and diligence in learning. Uh, Verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 10 in in Psalm 32 gives us blessing number 6, the faithful friend. At first glance, this blessing is merely a summary of all the others, uh, and, and it is a summary. David wants, us, wants to remind us of the sorrows that are experienced by those who don't repent and of the loving kindness that God shows to those who do. <clears throat> but he still has more to teach. Because even in summarizing what he's already said, this verse still adds to the others, telling us that God's love towards those who trust him is steadfast. When God forgives us, he becomes our faithful friend. You know, Muslims will tell you that every time you ask for forgiveness, God becomes more reluctant to give it. But the truth is, he never stops loving us. He continues to shower us with the blessings of forgiveness. His full pardon is once for all. It can never be undone. God always wants us to keep following him, whatever it takes. Um, but his fatherly discipline lasts for a moment while we, when we repent, while his favor lasts a lifetime. Uh, freedom from guilt can always be found in him and his spirit will continually fan, in, fan into flame a fervor for righteousness within us as we walk in step with him. See, God's always faithful. His love always surrounds those who trust him. No matter what you've done, you never need to fear bearing your sin to him. But if you refuse to come to him, then beware the sorrows that you're storing up for yourself. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, says David. And unless you're one of those who trust in God, you are in that category. There's no middle ground, no space for good people. Only through trusting in God's forgiveness can you escape the eternal sorrows. But if you have come to him, eternal blessings are yours. And those eternal blessings are an endless source of joy to you. Which brings us to the final blessing. Uh, This is blessing number seven. The application, finding joy in the blessings of forgiveness. In verse 11. Uh... So far, we've seen how. So far, we've seen how, how God's forgiveness is really, really good news. And like all good news, it's worth enjoying and celebrating. And that's this last blessing. As forgiven people, we have something to make a great, joyful song and dance about. In verse eleven, David tells us to be glad in the Lord, to rejoice, to shout for joy. <clears throat> when we fully understand God's forgiveness, we can find joy in it. We're blessed. Uh, We can enjoy what God has done. To rejoice is to be joyful, that is, uh, to deeply enjoy God's goodness. It speaks of our uh, attitude towards God's blessings. To be glad is, is then to feel that joy, let it guide our emotions, not just have it as a nebulous concept. And then to shout for joy is to express those feelings. In other words, as forgiven people, those who have been made upright and righteous before God we can and should enjoy that forgiven state from the heart and show it expressively. We can enjoy the gospel. And when we do, it shapes our whole life, our attitude, our emotions, our actions. Of course, we aren't immune to the pain of this world, but because of the greatness of the gospel, our response to this world's pain is different from those of unbelievers. So how do we breed enjoyment of the gospel? 
Well, by constantly immersing ourselves in its greatness. Meditate on the truth that through the death of Jesus, we no longer have to answer for our sins. We experience God's fatherly love in his desire to no longer see us persist in our sins. God no longer sees us as sinful, uh, but he sees us as having the righteousness of Christ. We have favor with God. He hears our prayers and helps us through troubling times. We've been filled with the Spirit of God who gives us a passion for his ways uh, and drives us to teach and learn his ways with otherwise impossible fervor. And we can experience the faithful love of God uh, because of which we can always trust his goodness and mercy. So if you've confessed your sin and placed yourself on God's mercy, be encouraged, be moved, be glad. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and blessed, infinitely, eternally blessed is the man who is forgiven. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do want to thank you for this psalm. Uh, We want to thank you for the lessons that David learned uh, and the fact that you are the same God today who who forgave David then, who loved David uh, and gave him all these blessings, Lord, that we can read about. Uh, God, I pray that if there's someone here who who doesn't know your forgiveness, Lord, that you would uh, convict them and uh, bring them to the point of uh, of knowing you, of falling on your uh, on your grace, Lord, and uh, committing themselves to you um, and receiving that forgiveness, Lord. I just pray uh, also for those who do know your forgiveness, Lord, that we would um, yet yeah, that we would continually grow in our enjoyment of that, Lord, and that we would. Uh, continue to meditate on it and to um, just be amazed at the glory and the greatness of your mercy towards us, Lord. Uh, We do want to thank you again for these uh, amazing truths, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.